Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Connecting startups with companies experiencing IT pain points allows Workbench to fulfill its deeper purpose in growing enterprise tech startups. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we sit down with general partner and co-founder of Workbench, Jessica Lin, to discuss the soccer ball theory to growth, her intriguing experience wearing a GoPro camera at work, how she and her team play matchmaker between startups and corporate America, and New York City's important role as a central marketplace for the enterprise tech sector. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. And you, by the way, are the first person that we've had a in-person Cornell Tech at Bloomberg uh, conversation since, I believe, February of 2020. I am so, so honored to be here, Scarlett. This is such a blast. So we're thrilled to have you here. As usual, I want to start with your background to get a sense of your history and how that feeds into how you think about things today. You're a Taiwanese-American. Uh, your parents immigrated here to the country. Like most Asians, they place a lot of emphasis on education. Tell us about how that's shaped your thinking about how you pursue your goals. Yeah, I love that question because not enough people talk about it, right? And my parents, my father came to this country and actually first got his first jobs were working at a gas station as a waiter, you know, as a busboy and as a janitor. And he was very lucky. He had education. He went on to become a software engineer and then actually later a lawyer. And stories like that are just so rare, sadly, these days, right? And I think you have to really ask, what is broken in our country and our system that people don't have these opportunities anymore? And so I think every day about the opportunities we have in tech, uh, what we're doing at Workbench, what we're doing in New York City, um, and how we can be able to better bridge um, sometimes these two very different worlds we're seeing. So a lot of people who end up in business and entrepreneurship studied economics or <laughs> did something to that effect in college. You kind of went in the other direction. You studied Swahili at yep. Harvard. Yeah. Um, you had an interest in international public health and development. That's kind of unusual for an Asian American. I think when people look at my LinkedIn, they think this makes no sense. It's like zig and zag and up and down. But it's true. I had so much interest going into college around international development. I had a lot of exposure to that early on. And every summer, I had the opportunity to uh, intern and work in East Africa. I was convinced I was going to work with the CDC. And really, as we often see in tech and with startups, you know, ended up doing a pretty big pivot in my career that landed me in enterprise software investing. Okay, so you took an engineering class in college that yeah. kind of piqued your interest and it changed your trajectory. What was it about that class that was so transformative for you? What caught your eye and made you rethink everything you had planned up until that point? Yeah, so this was an engineering class my senior year, and it was actually all around the intersection of arts and sciences and different disciplines. And that's when I really realized you could bring many different um, technologies to play and enable things in, whether it's in public health or arts um, or, or sciences or whatever it is. And so um, that's really when I realized that there was so much more beyond perhaps global health. Um, and this was actually, you know, in the days when startups were not the fad yet and very few people were really pursuing it. Um, so I was very lucky early on to get that type of exposure and experience. So after college, you went on to explore that idea right and you lived in South Africa for a year you got to really dig into your tech interests and develop those you said that that experience for you demonstrated um, the immense potential for technology to transform lives at scale 
what exactly did you see there? What exactly did you do there? Yeah, so I actually worked on a project my senior year with a, a soccer ball that when you kicked it, actually captured and stored energy. And this was really to speak to the infrastructure and energy challenges at the time that I was seeing. And, you know, I think when you can make something accessible, something that's very, very hard accessible for, for you know, for everyone, that you can really unlock a lot um, within the community. And that's so much of what we brought to bear here at Workbench. And we can talk a lot more about how we've made enterprise software, we hope, much more accessible and much more fun. Okay, so let's talk about enterprise software <laughs> because you moved into technology in a big way after your year in South Africa. You went to go work for Cisco, and Bloomberg describes Cisco as the biggest maker of internet gear, gear that <laughs> powers the internet. I mean, it's not exciting stuff, but it's crucial stuff. It's really uh, critical stuff. It's a true enterprise software company. What exactly does that mean to people who are not in business or in technology? Well, I think the beauty of Cisco, and it, to be honest, it wasn't something even I really realized until I was there, that so much of even us sitting in the studio is likely powered by Cisco, whether it's the Wi-Fi and the networks and the cables, um, the telephones that we use, right? And I think what's hard is a lot of young people when they graduate college, very few of them say, I can't wait to work for a large Fortune 500 company. And the advice I actually give to young people now when they come to me for career advice is to at least for a few years work at a large company and you'll get a lot of experiences and understand a lot of different pain points there that could really set you on a great career with an enterprise software and to start a company. I love that. Go to a big company to learn the pain points so that you can move on from there. So tell us a little bit about what you did at Cisco over your two years. What did you learn and did you bounce around from division to division or who were you exposed to there that gave you an, a sense of the different pain points? Yeah, so I actually was so lucky at Cisco and I worked with an incredible team. I was actually within a, a broader learning and development team and I actually worked actually with engineering organization. And so actually for a quarter, I wore a GoPro camera on my head and I followed all these software engineers around to best document how they um, develop software uh, with agile technology and practices. And um, I got to work on really cool projects like that um, that helped me understand, hey, this is what it means to be within a big company. This is where what great best practices look like even with within a massive enterprise. And um, I think that's brought a lot of my passion to Workbench, which is how do you, again, be that, um, be that Sherpa, if you will, be that translator between really, really big companies where there's such great things happening and also smaller startups are trying to sell into them. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that transition then from Cisco where you worked in corporate IT. I mean, yeah. that is like the paragon of corporate IT <laughs> to the investing side. I mean, yeah. that's a that's not unusual or typical transition. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, so I was very lucky, and I think this is actually pretty consistent throughout my career, which is you know these moments where you're very lucky to work with great people, and that's what I always say as a North Star, is work with great people, follow them, and go somewhere where you can learn a lot. So I actually was given this opportunity to co-found Workbench with my co-founder, Jonathan Lair. Uh, we were a professional arranged marriage, if you will. We were introduced by our first investor, um, and we really set out seven years ago to just rethink enterprise software investing. And what I mean by that is we looked around New York City and we said, 52 of the Fortune 500s in our backyard. We come out of corporate IT. We see all this opportunity within these large organizations around 
people and product and process and tools, instead of just going to Silicon Valley and finding cool tech, why don't we go to all the customers here and ask them first what their pain points are, what their challenges are, and then we go and find the best startups and simply play matchmaker. Um, so that's really what we did. And seven years later, you know, we've, we're really proud that we've laid this um, brick by brick, this New York City ecosystem. We hosted almost 200 events a year to bring together, again, the best of the best of what we call the suits and the hoodies, all the corporates, all the startups, and these two engines of community and corporate engagement. So that's interesting. You would go over to the Fortune 500 companies first and say, tell me about your problems. Exactly. I want to hear about them first. And yep. then I'm going to go look for a solution for them. Is that right? That's right. And this is different from other VC firms. This is different from other investors in general because the guys in Silicon Valley, the VCs there, are they doing anything like that? Look, there are phenomenal, phenomenal venture funds in Silicon Valley, right? And great partners and people with great experiences. I think it's the ability to combine those two paired with the fact that we're in New York City with the geographical density of all these Fortune 500 customers that quite frankly you can't get in Silicon Valley. And then paired lastly with our ability to help be that matchmaker and help close customers and oftentimes multi-million dollar contracts for our portfolio companies. And we always say, especially at the early stage where we're investing, customers are like oxygen. So each customer that you can lock in on the enterprise side um, helps you live another day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You had talked about the technology in Silicon Valley as being cool tech. Does that make <laughs> the technology that you do here on the East Coast to enterprises boring tech or old tech? I mean, how would you, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how would you describe it as a counterpoint to the cool tech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, seven years ago when we launched, people, when we tell people we invest in enterprise software, they'd be like, well, what is that? Mm -hmm. Right? And New York City at the time was very much ad tech, e-commerce focused, right? Some incredible companies, but enterprise software was not on the map then. In fact, MongoDB was only just getting started in the early days. Datadog was, I think, getting their seed funding. And it's, of course, you can see now how well they've done in the public markets. And so we actually tracked the fundings of New York City uh, enterprise software um, and the venture investing they receive. And just this year alone, in 2021, the first half, there was $7 billion of venture investing into New York City enterprise startups. And uh, you know, just a year ago, a quarter of that went into um, early stage startups. So what that means is that there's more and more early stage startups. These uh, startups are then also going on to raise Series A, Series Bs, or pre-IPO. And so there's so much opportunity right now. And that's why we're so, so uh, pumped that um, there's no better time to be investing in early stage um, enterprise here in New York. So taking a step back here, if someone else were to ask you, okay, look, I'm in corporate IT, I see plenty of pain points all day long, yeah. and I want to follow a path that you've kind of laid out already, how would I go about making that transition from corporate IT to being an investor, being that matchmaker? You know, so much I think of the playbook that we do on a day-to-day -day at Workbench can be done by many other people, right? At the end of the day, we have two engines, like I mentioned, the community mm -hmm. and the corporate engagement. On the community front, like I said, these are data science conferences, these are meetups we're hosting, CEO dinners, sales workshops, women enterprise breakfasts, and more. And then on corporate engagement, roundtables. We also do so much around content and research. We're constantly publishing our different investment themes and areas that we're looking at based on our conversations with corporates. And so if you are a corporate, you already have the first-hand look. And I would encourage you to go out and publish what you're, what you're looking at, what you're seeing, right? From there, go out and meet founders. Offer to be that matchmaker and that connector, right? And then call up Workbench and we should work together. <laughs> so share what you're seeing and what you're experiencing out there. What, I wonder what the startup founders, these entrepreneurs that you do meet, what do they hear from you that they don't hear from traditional VCs who don't have this kind of experience? I hope first and foremost they hear a lot of empathy, 
right? I think we have empathy on both sides, both for the Fortune 500s, these large enterprises, the challenges because we lived it. Mm -hmm. And the other side is to understand what startups face. I mean, these are sometimes six to 12, 15 month enterprise sales cycles. You wake up every day and you hit your head against the wall and you do it again the next day. And so we understand when you say you're navigating procurement, you're trying to figure out legal clauses, you're trying to survive security, we understand that. In fact, we want to help make that easier and help you know remove these landmines that might come up because we've seen it time and again. And at a certain point, when you're building these world-class enterprise startup uh, software companies, these are almost predictable you know roadblocks that are going to come up. And if we can help you accelerate six to twelve months by avoiding even one or two of those those obstacles, we we consider ourselves you know very lucky. Twelve to fifteen months. Why is that sales cycle so long? So what happens is, let's say you're selling, uh, you know, a massive distributed database, right? A great example is our portfolio company, Cockroach Labs, now valued at $2 billion. But in the early days, you know, they were going out to find customers willing to take a chance on a very technical product. Um, and we actually were able to help introduce them to JP Morgan, who's publicly, you know, endorsed them as their database. And these sometimes span many BUs and many, many stakeholders. And when you have a, te uh, a technology that is so technical, technical, you have to go through a lot of the rigor around security, privacy, data, legal, understandably. Okay, gotcha. And you guys have the know-how, knowing how to navigate within those big companies exactly. and kind of holding people's hands as they go through all of that. Exactly. Holding their hands, getting a beer with them, having a good laugh, right? All the good parts of, you know, all the, the, the highs and the lows, we'll say, of building an enterprise startup company. Are the big companies, are the big Fortune 500 companies spending more or less um, these days? I mean, clearly, um, they're trying to automate things, they're trying to become more productive, but at the same time, um, they want to make sure that they're not blowing their budget on, on technology that could get outdated pretty quickly as well. Well, in fact, I think what we saw during COVID is the willingness to invest, right? I think Satya Nadella said that they saw two years of digital transformation happen within two months in 2020 alone. And so what that means is what, again, used to be in-person meetings and team huddles and honestly paper files being transported back and forth. 2020 forced a lot of these large companies to realize they couldn't rely on that anymore, right? And to and to force this digital transformation. And so a great example is actually our portfolio company, Fire Hydrant, based here in New York City. And they're a platform that helps with incident response management. Mm -hmm. So what that means is if you're Delta or you're a banking app or if you're Peloton, right, you are uptime, you have you're online and anytime there is any downtime at all, even a minute. That could be millions of dollars right. lost. And so they help these teams and engineers manage what happens when there is a downtime, how to resolve them, and then how to prevent them in the future. And I think that is not going to go away. In fact, it's only going to continue that you see increased productivity, increased uh, collaboration, and automation when you bring technology and great people together. But is this technology that will displace jobs as well in the future for, for people who are working right now? Well, so something like Fire Hydrant, they're helping to enable these groups of site reliability engineers. And so, again, a lot of it was emails back and forth, text messages back and forth. It's capturing all of that now and saying, hey, you should understand this is what happens when downtimes happen. This is what happens when incidents happen. And just so you know, in the future, this is how you can better prevent it. Mm -hmm. So it's helping enable people at their jobs and do it better and be less of a headache. And hopefully um, keep you focused on the parts of the job that make you exactly. happy as opposed to the parts that, that exasperate you. Exactly. So you joined Workbench in 2014 when it was only one year old. You're a co-founder. Talk about how 
how it's evolved over time, the kinds of companies you were looking at initially versus what you're looking at now? Well, the beauty of our model is that in seven years, it's, it's really not changed at all. We've always been all enterprise all the time. We've always not been- Not tempted at all to look at companies <laughs> that sell to consumers? Not tempted at all. We've been very, very disciplined on that front. Um, and we were just like biggest enterprise IT nerds, really. <laughs> Even in the days when it was really uncool, like we talked about, right? And always been based here in New York City. You know, and what's great, like I mentioned, with this rise of this ecosystem is that there's more and more ever to do here. Mm -hmm. And the customer base is that honey and that magnet. Mm -hmm. um, and what's great is with our new $100 million fund, what that really allows us to do is be able to lead three to $6 million rounds of C to C2 um, and really capitalize on again the past seven years where fund one proved the model could work mm -hmm. fund two put institutional dollars behind it and now this is really the the fund that will let us execute the strategy best uh, capitalize on this growing ecosystem and help support our founders and make them really successful who do you consider your competition is is there a West Coast version of workbench is, is there a uh, Boston version of you guys yeah so I think when we talked earlier about the magnet and that honey I just think that this New York City geography and why we we will always be beating the drum on New York is so, so critical, right? You just do not have this uh, proximity to customers anywhere else. So the fact that I can be uptown, downtown, you know, within minutes meet customers and do, you know, customer happy hour, then also do a recruiting dinner within one day is really, really unique. Mm -hmm. And so I think you'll always meet great enterprise investors. You'll always meet great other funds. But to be able to do that all here and be hyper, hyper focused is what we're really proud of here at Workbench. You had mentioned earlier how you are the intersection of suits and hoodies. Yeah. Explain what that means. Yeah, and so when we used to host meetups in you know in person, I mean you could physically see half the room being suits and half the room wearing hoodies. These are, you know, execs. Sometimes execs actually show up in hoodies and then actually have founders show up in suits, you know. Uh, but it really is the best of the best in enterprise software. And that's what we mean when we say we've been building this ecosystem brick by brick. When we started seven years ago, we just said, how do we get the best of the best together, mm -hmm. right? And how do we make sure that people are meeting each other and connecting and learning? And it's been just incredible to see how the ecosystem continues to grow and give back. We have founders, operators, execs who are constantly um, mentoring and advising and supporting one another. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that that is so unique and, and something that really touches us every day. So our audience who's watching this conversation right now, uh, a lot of them see themselves as entrepreneurs or future entrepreneurs, and they're going to be starting a lot of companies in their lifetime. How should they be thinking about selling to a consumer versus a business? Make the case for why selling to a business is better. So I will, um, I will say, that there's no one way in life, so <laughs> whatever route you choose. But if you want to do enterprise software, the reason why really is you're building a product that provides so much value to an end customer mm -hmm. who will then pay you predictable revenue back, right? And I think a lot of us saw the beauty of this during COVID when there's incredible public enterprise companies that didn't phenomenally well. You saw Zoom, you saw Snowflake, you saw UiPath, you're in New York City with one of the largest software IPOs ever in history. And that's because you're you're delivering value to someone who will then, you know, pay you pay you money for that. And then you can continue making the product better. You can continue serving your customers better. You can continue making, you know, work better. Uh, and so, you know, we're obviously the biggest enterprise software fans. Um, and we you have a have lot to worry of worry about falling out of fashion either, I guess. Well, we have a lot of founders actually who 
their first time around was a consumer company and they realized the second time around they wanted to do enterprise software. Interesting. Wait, talk to us about that. How did that happen? What was their thinking as they went through it? Was it because they hit a um, hit an obstacle or was it because they exited successfully and they're like now I want to get into something where I talk to a different group of people? I think a lot of them found that the business model with consumer exactly to your point can be again unpredictable. You can do all the things right, you can build a great product, you can have great traction but again if it falls out of favor or if something in the market changes it's largely out of your control and I think that's a part of it within enterprise software. Look there's a lot of things that are not in your control but there are a lot of things that are and so how do we just help you execute really well on them and get out to market and, and be really successful. So what are the things that are not in your control if you're building enterprise software? So I think... Um, that long lead time you talked about, 12 to 15 months. Yeah, so the enterprise sales cycle can be very, very long, right? But there are also ways to help I wouldn't say accelerate it, but there are things that you can do to make sure that you know you're set up for success. Whether that's following the enterprise sales process, right? And these are playbooks that we have on our website that we've published and we've hosted workshops around. Because again, most people when you go to school, you don't learn about an enterprise sales cycle, right? You never learn this. And so, how do we make sure that future founders are set up for success there? Mm -hmm. um, and then I think a lot of it comes down to execution and so much of it is on on hiring great people and team. And that's a part I think that, you know, a, a lot of times perhaps VCs don't don't necessarily consider quite as much. And we know how important it is and why being in New York City, you know, with so much of our, many of our portfolio companies in our backyards is, is so important because being able to um, work alongside our founders who are you know, every day facing go-to-market challenges mm -hmm. um, and be able to do that in person, whether that's with us or with customers and then going out and hiring in person, it makes a really big difference. So with more people returning to the office and not necessarily working remotely or working in some kind of hybrid setup, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the future of enterprise software? So I think it's both, right? I think you're going to see more and more talent perhaps that can be hired that's not just on the on the two coasts and i think that's a good thing this you know democratizing of talent whether it's throughout the us or you know internationally mm -hmm. um i do think it's hard when you don't get to be in person so you know we're talking to our companies a lot of them are investing more and more in bringing people together regardless mm -hmm. of the office setup mm -hmm. um so i think there's both good and bad i know for us personally at workbench what we were able to do is actually you know beat our uh, enterprise drum beyond New York so we were able to start hosting these enterprise tech meetups that we've been hosting for almost nine years globally and we would have people dial in from Israel and UK and the West Coast so um, I think there's parts of that we'd love to somehow still maintain while still getting back into the, the swing of things here in New York City. What did you learn from talking to those people outside of New York that you hadn't realized before when you were so New York City centric? I think enterprise founders everywhere face very similar challenges and that's the thing whether you're in the UK or Israel a lot of you know surviving stock 2 audit right understanding POC clauses how to build a top of funnel demand gen engine these are international global problems regardless of where you're based and a lot of what we can do and support these companies we realize we can extend again just beyond New York City so is there a plan to expand beyond New York City then for workbench well, so I actually think the beauty of what we do is that we have this home field advantage here in New York, regardless. And no matter what, the ecosystem will continue growing. We are going to uh, capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. um, but we can be open to, you know, founders and companies outside of New York City as well. Gotcha, gotcha. What, but now for the companies that are here based in New York City, what advantages do you think they have, um, the startups have, coming out of New York that, say, coming out of Silicon Valley or the West Coast or Boston, they, they, they aren't? getting. 
you know, really comes down to diversity, right? And I think every New Yorker here is very proud and we're always, you know, waving the flag. But I think there's so much diversity when you think about industries, mm -hmm. right? So it's not just a tech, a tech city. There's finance, there's media, there's tech and more. Um, and so I think the talent that you get is, is very different. I think the type of focus you get is different as well. And then, like I said, we'll always go back to this, is that there are always the customers here. Um, and that's just something that you, quite frankly, can't get in, in other cities. Right. The, the, I mean, Fortune 500 companies are based here, will continue to be based here, and yeah. they will need help to, to get done what they always have to do operationally. Um, you put together a state of enterprise tech funding report. You mentioned it earlier. 2020 was a banner year for enterprise tech yeah. software in New York City. But to be fair, you're working off a much smaller base than you would be if you were in Silicon Valley or if you're talking about the market overall, right? Well, so from a numbers perspective, yes. I think from an actual numbers perspective, that could be true. But again, we see this pie growing, right? Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more and more startups being founded. And when you look back at 2014 to now, it's 24 billion, right? And I think it's really important to, to call out, as you said, just from 2020 to even 2021, this explosion and $7 billion in this first half alone. So it's only getting better. And I think it's only going to get bigger. Um, and we're a clear number two to to SF, and we're seeing lots of founders actually coming to New York, right, and wanting to start their second and third companies here as well. Where are they coming here from? From Silicon Valley, um, from Boston, from, from other cities, and they want to do their next company here based on so much of what we talked about. Because of the wealth of companies that are already based here and the access to them. Exactly. So you personally focus on investments related to the future of work. Yeah. Uh, we're talking productivity, collaboration, HR. What's um, an example of a, a company, a founder that you're most excited about at the moment? Yeah, so we are so pumped by so many of our companies within our portfolio. I would love to call out Spring Health, their mental health uh, benefits company based mm -hmm. here in New York City, an incredible female founder, April Co. And as we saw during COVID, you know, mental health has taken, you know, center stage in, in what I think is an important way, right? And even a few years ago when we did the investment in 2018, there was still so much education around mental health and the stigma around that. Mm -hmm. And you weren't finding employers really willing to talk about that. And now you're seeing with Spring Health working with companies like Gap, like Whole Foods, like Adobe and more, that this is something that employers are really prioritizing understanding is so important. Do you see that taking place in other cities as well? I mean, or in other countries, I should say, because certainly that's the case in the U.S., um, but are companies around the world uh, becoming more empathetic in that same way? I would hope so. And the beauty of something like Spring Health is that they are now selling to multinational companies, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if they are selling into, you know, a Pfizer and Pfizer is global and they, the global team now has access to these benefits, I would love to think that that type of ripple effect um, does go and spread into other countries. Yet another example of why you want to look at big multinational companies as exactly. customers, right? Exactly. Um, you mentioned that it was a female founder and I know that a lot of your efforts specifically are focused on uh, growing women in enterprise technology. Um, what, where are you seeing women really stand out in this, in this part of the world? Well, I think there's so much that women um, are, are building within enterprise tech and 
we just recently published a report and highlighted a number of exceptional women founders at the seed stage, and they're building some of the most technical products out there, right? Whether it's in machine learning, AI, whether it's in cybersecurity, infrastructure, and more. And so we're super pumped to see that. We're doing as much as we can to support them. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've been doing for four plus years is this um, collating this public database of women enterprise founders, all the way from seed to very much late stage. It's a public database. Anyone can access it. And we personally use it ourselves as an investment team mm -hmm. once a quarter in our investment committee where we review this um, database and if there are founders who have been added to it who you know um, are building interesting things or within our stage and sweet spot we're the ones who reach out right and that's the thing I would say to you know almost any investor is that you know deal flow doesn't just become diverse right? right you need to make it diverse and the way to do that is through data something like a database and then also behavior change applying it to your investment processes um, and so um, you know we hope that this is a resource that more and more investors use so what does the data show in terms of how many of your portfolio companies are run by women? Yeah, so our portfolio, we have 20% of them are women founders. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that I think when you look at the overall um, numbers of women in tech, which is already largely underrepresented, and then enterprise software, it's a whole nother slug. Um, we're really proud of that number. That said, we know we can do even better, mm -hmm. right? And so it's initiatives like this and so much more that we're doing that um, really we hope can increase that number, right? We're doing a lot with what we call women enterprise initiatives, whether it's through conferences that we're hosting and happy hours and events and meetups um, to just, again, provide what I would say the three C's. It's mm -hmm. contacts, context, mm -hmm. and credibility. And this is actually a nod to another awesome women investor, Alana at Basecase, who shared this framework with me. And you know, do you have the context to know what you're building? And we're seeing more and more, yes, mm -hmm. that these women um, founders have the enterprise expertise and why we continue to do these webinars to really educate and help um, help them continue to build great companies. Uh, contacts, whether it's just meeting more and more people, whether it's other investors or other customers or you know, great talent, and then the credibility piece, right? Um, and how we can, again, propel everyone forward. Yeah, and obviously seeing more people like you helps. I mean, I think about how in my efforts to book guests, a lot of the times I'm looking for female CEOs, yeah. and they all, not, I, I shouldn't generalize, but oftentimes you'll find a female CEO who has started a company that has to do with retail or health. It's very, um, those industries are very female dominated and you don't necessarily see women in software, let alone enterprise software. How, how much time do you spend explaining that enterprise software is, is a good area for women specifically when they don't see a lot of examples ahead of them? Yeah, look, I think being a founder of a startup is, you know, is something that will take a decade or more of your life, right? And it's probably the hardest work that a person can do. So, you know, I think it's very much for someone to come in and hopefully having had that experience, again, having those contacts and, and wanting to build this, I think it's very hard to convince someone if that's mm -hmm. not their heart's passion because you need to want to work on this every single day and night and weekends for, again, 10 years. Uh, but if you do have that passion and that interest, then we at Workbench want to be there to be that partner and support you. Gotcha, okay. In your spare time, it's hard to believe that you actually have some spare time, but you do have another passion. You teach GED classes, uh, basically helping uh, those who didn't graduate get their high school equivalency. You've done this for years. You did it in Boston, and now you're doing it in New York City. 
How do you combine that with your passion for technology, for enterprise software? I mean, I know that it, it might not seem like a natural fit, but I wonder if, how much overlap there is and how much it affects your thinking on one side or the other. Yeah, I think there's so much that we can apply from the tech world to, again, adult education. Um, and a big part of what I try to do is just say, hey, look, there are some incredible students I work with, all adults, many of them have multiple jobs, you know, three kids at home, English is their second language, and they just don't get opportunities like we do in tech. So again, what I try to do is be that bridge as much as I can and say, if there are companies that are hiring, if there are companies that are offering internships, if there are companies, you know, allowing people to shadow and just learn more about tech, again, how do we bring this gap closer together mm -hmm. um, is something I'm really passionate about. And, you know, I work with a lot of students who are exactly like my father, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who I think if given the opportunity would be really successful. And so this opportunity gap you know, we're in tech, we, we're oftentimes so privileged we don't see it. And yeah. so, if anything, it's just me saying, hey, how do we get these two worlds closer together? Yeah, I can imagine. I'm going to ask a question I know that if our if we had a live audience, they would ask you about. <laughs> what, what would you say is your biggest mistake that you've made during your career? So, I think I make lots of mistakes every day. <laughs> Um, and it's actually hard to pinpoint, okay, what is, which mistake should I highlight? I think it comes down to a growth mindset, and I'm sure you can appreciate this as well. I think even when things go well, I'm constantly pushing our team to, you know, iterate and improve, right? And I think um, a, great, a great framework, again, I think of is actually from Frank Slootman, who's the CEO of ServiceNow. He says, you know, narrow your focus, uh, up the quality, and increase speed. Right, and w when we apply it to Workbench, right, we are pretty much as narrow a focus <laughs> as you can be, enterprise all day, every day. Yeah. We're constantly trying to, you know, increase and up the quality of what we do, right? Whether it's the events that we do, the reports that we're putting out, the experiences our founders are having with us. But the last point is really around speed, right? And as you can see in today's market, which is more competitive than ever, mm -hmm. we need to constantly be iterating. Things that we did seven years ago at Workbench, quite frankly, might not work today. Yeah. And we need to constantly be pushing ourselves as a firm to be you know improving and changing and listening to feedback and growing and then getting back out there and doing it all over again so I would say we probably make lots of mistakes every day the key is to incorporate them reflect on them make changes and get back out there does that mean in order to stay on top of all those changes that it's good to always keep getting fresh blood, getting new people who used to work in corporate IT into the, the realms of Workbench? Well, I'm so proud of the team that we've built here at Workbench, and we actually have more women than men. Our women outnumber the There's men good on the Workbench team. Um, and we continue to look for people with great backgrounds. So yeah, whether it is, you know, you were previously in corporate IT, or you were previously an operator, or you've done great research, we're really open to so many roles. I think the key, though, is that hustle, mm -hmm. right? And I would, you know, put us much closer to a startup rather than another VC based again mm. on this platform, the engine that we're doing in addition to the investing. So um, it's all about the hustle uh, and the grit. I like that. I like how you think of what you do as a startup more than a venture. Very uh, much so. And I hope always to be like that. Yeah, it's hard to do that You know, once you're a middle-aged company or a veteran company. Um, what's a company and leader that you admire when you look around right now? Yeah, you know, someone I really admire um, and is top of mind is actually Aileen Lee. So she's another investor. Um, she's one of the founding partners at Cowboy Ventures. Um, she's been such a 
big supporter of me and Workbench. And, you know, when I see her and the success that she's had with Cowboy, then of course this huge movement that she created with All Rays, you know, I'm so inspired by what she does. And most of all, she's just so authentic. And mm -hmm. I think that's the key part is like, who is authentic, who supports, and who wants to help raise other people up? It's a small community looking for other female uh, venture investors. It is, yeah, and the beauty of something like an all raise that didn't exist, again, even five years ago, is this community and support system, right? Mm -hmm. And you could do it one by one, but to have an actual movement helps a lot to connect and to learn from one another and to also avoid the landmines that, you know, our founders are also trying to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, um, I want to bring in some questions from a Cornell Tech graduate for you. and. Uh, Danielle Boris asks a couple of different questions. So I'm gonna start here on uh, diversity and inclusion. Cool. The question that she asks you is that 2020 put a spotlight on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. While organizations have implemented uh, a lot of training, the training that they've put in place does little to help companies know whether managers are creating equitable environments for their team. It allows them to check a box, essentially. Mm -hmm. How do you see management changing to create a system of accountability for improving diversity and inclusion? I mean, that's a great question. I think it's evolving. It continues to evolve and, and, you know, that's the work that needs to be done, right? I think, you know, a few things. One is your leadership I likely, you know, won't be pushed to change things unless there is pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes externally, but also within an organization. And so what that means is how do we get more diverse voices and people within an organization? One of our companies based here in New York City called Ripple Match actually is doing exactly that. So they're an early career recruiting platform focused specifically on diverse candidates. And they, again, going back to what I said, no one you know graduates college and necessarily wants to work at a large Fortune 500. They're helping to create those opportunities for young people to say, hey, look, have you ever considered an opportunity or a job at SAP or Dell or PNC? And they're unlocking so many great jobs and, and connecting great candidates. And so I think it's more and more technologies and platforms like that that can help move the needle on that. And then of course, there's so much within people and processes that, that do have to be translated, mm -hmm. but that is one very tactical way to start. I see a lot of emphasis and focus on recruiting uh, diverse talent and different kinds of people with different backgrounds. And one thing people and companies haven't figured out yet is how to retain that talent, yeah. right? And to develop that talent. Can software, can technology help that? Or is that, does that come down to person-to-person -person contact? Like that, that has to be something that people do the work on. Yeah, I think it's twofold. I agree that person-person contact, it's so hard when you don't have that. And I think COVID really, you know, highlighted that, that it's, it can be very isolating by yourself. I've also heard though during COVID that it was an equalizer, right? Mm -hmm. When you're on Zoom, everyone is a square box. There's not one louder voice than others, right? And so I actually heard from a lot of people of color and, and different backgrounds say they actually felt they were even more equal in a Zoom meeting. They were not having to deal with you know, awkward interactions, weird comments, all the things that sometimes make a professional workplace difficult. So I think there's pros and cons to that, right? Um, and I think we're seeing more and more software at least saying, how do we help connect you, right? You might still have to do these, you know, interactions in person, of course, but how can we at least connect you with someone you might not know within a massive organization who could have your similar background and profile or interest mm -hmm. and who um, can be, uh, you know, a champion for you. But do managers tend to rely on software and technology too much to do that work for them instead of 
learning the hard way or doing the training, getting the, uh, the right education? I can see both. I think there are hopefully, and over time, and especially coming out of Cisco and at learning and development, I have a sweet spot for this world is just, just better training, yeah. right? And we are seeing more and more companies started in this space. But I do think sometimes there are things that as people we have biases to, we don't see. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes technology can uncover some of that. Okay, so the second question for Danielle yeah. talks about technology and tools because you wrote in a recent Forbes article, and I know that you blog for Forbes, right? You write a That's lot of right. pieces for them yeah. about the widespread uptick in digital tools aimed to make employees' lives easier since the beginning of the pandemic. This uptick, excuse me, this uptick has led to quote unquote tool fatigue. So, given this, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are creating software aimed at improving the employee experience? Oh my gosh, Dad. Tool fatigue is such a such a big issue, I think, and we all have multiple logins and multiple apps that we're signing into. I think over time we are seeing more and more um, consolidation, if you will, where people are understanding, you know, point solutions are challenging because you have to somehow integrate with all the other solutions out there. So you're seeing companies take a much bigger and much more ambitious view to say, this might be our wedge in, but we will over time eat up more and more. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, a company that's a great example is our company Catalyst, mm -hmm. based here in New York City. They're a customer success platform. So they help customer success managers post sales, manage their customers and help them be successful. But over time, they will help with things like you know campaigns and retention and health scores and just be able to own more and more of just the customer experience overall mm -hmm. um, and realize that they can go into other competitive uh, markets if you will. Gotcha. All right well thank you so much. I want to thank Jessica Lin, co-founder and general partner of Workbench. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.